Well, good morning again, everyone. As you can imagine from the text, we have got a lot to cover today. So we're going to jump right in. If you've got a Bible in front of you, please uh, grab that. We're going to be jumping around here a bit. If not, there's a Bible right there in front of you you can use. But flip on over to that Matthew 19 passage this morning. We're going to take a look at this uh, verse by verse and be able to kind of unpack what is going on this morning. It says this, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side to the other side of the Jordan. Now hold your place there and just flip a few chapters to your left to Matthew 8, if you would, when we're taking a look at this little intro, because I think this does help us get a sense for the whole. Seems a little, uh, just setting the scene a little bit, but I think there's something here we need to see as we begin in Matthew 8, in verse 18. It says this, When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Now move your finger just 10 verses down to verse 28. It says, when he arrived at the other side in the region, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. Now flip through four verses, or, or excuse me, I can't do math, six chapters to the right. Go to Matthew 14, if you would, Matthew 14. We want to see this in the text. That flipping of the page sometimes is good. It gives us that tactile understanding that it is actually right there in front of us. In Matthew 14, verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. We see this phrase, the other side, again and again and again throughout Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, the other side. Now, the word other side in the Greek is the word panera, and it's equivalent of the Hebrew word for ever is the name, ever. The original name of the Jewish people was the Hebrews, and it is first used in the Old Testament to describe Abraham in Genesis 13. It's setting the stage for who these Hebrew people would be. Tradition teaches us that the word Hebrew comes from this word ever, referring to the fact that Abraham came from the other side of the Euphrates when God called him. So in Genesis 12, God calls him away from everything he knows and to head over to the other side. We get a description of this actually in Joshua, in Joshua 24. It says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond, that's that word, ever, they lived beyond on the other side of the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. There was this other way of doing it over there. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond, from the other side of the river, and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. And so this idea, this, I, this, even the very name Hebrew comes from this word ever to mean we are a people that are on other side. Abraham's father, his family, they were on one side, they served other gods, but then we come along and we cross over to the other side. And so now we become other side people. 
by its very name and history, the other side people, we are separated from other nation in belief and practice. So when Matthew here in our text writes the other side, it would bring up all sorts of things about being set apart and different and not like others. When Jesus says, come, let's go to the other side, the disciples know Ooh, that, that we're going to a place that's not our own. This is something different. So whatever is going to be read here in the next few verses, whatever we're to understand, we're understand it from the idea that this is not normal, that this is different, that the words that Jesus is about to give, if this is the intro and we're told it's on the other side, what Jesus is about to share is vastly different than the way the world is going to understand it. Whatever we are going to talk about in terms of marriage comes with the preface that, now remember this now, folks, we are an other side people. And so we need to understand marriage through the lens of being other side people. It, it alerts us that however it's going to be described, it's going to be indifferent than how the rest of the world operates. Because marriage is a picture. Marriage is a picture. And however we are to understand and however we to live out this idea of marriage, it's going to be a picture for the other side. Let's keep going in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him and to test him. This wasn't a good test. This was a trap. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? I love that phrase, for any and every reason. Now, at that time, in Jesus' day, there were actually two legitimate schools of thought, actually uh, uh, more formal schools, more formal camps, in the way that the Pharisees understood and interpreted and lived out Scripture. One was called the House of Shemaiah. And the House of Shemaiah was more uh, conservative in nature. They read the Scriptures more conservatively and there was the house of Hillel, which was more liberal in its interpretation and liberal in its camp. So you had these two different groups, these two different ways of thinking in Jesus' day, the house of Shemaiah and the house of Hillel, one conservative, one more progressive, how they read the scriptures and lived it out and how they lived their lives in the world. Man, if only the scriptures were more relevant to our day today. I just... I can't get over that. I just wish it was a little more relevant. Now, these two schools of thought, every single excruciating detail about how to live out the law the way God wants us to. Sabbath laws, ritual purity, who could eat with who. Now, at its best, at its very best, it created a passion for being rightly before God. We don't what he says lightly. But at its worst, it created a culture of legalism, worried about the letter of the law and losing the spirit behind it. And this is the very setting we find ourselves in here in this passage. Jesus is being tested on his view of divorce, and there were two sides on the issue. And the question is, what side, Jesus, do you take? Do you, more, do you lean more Hillel? Are you a, are you a Hillel kind of guy? 
Are you a Shemaya kind of guy? Are, are you more conservative in your, in your thinking and belief? Are you more liberal or, liberal or progressive in how you find it? And the debate centered on one particular text. And we need to know this text because this will give us all the insight we need in order to understand Jesus' answer. The, the, the debate centered around Deuteronomy 24. And in fact, the Pharisees quoted a little bit later on when he says, well, why does Moses uh, permit us to submit a certificate of divorce? They're quoting Deuteronomy 24 here. That's the center in Jesus' day. That was the center of the debate was this passage in Deuteronomy 24. Let's read it together. It says this. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends it from her house, then, and it goes on to describe all the different legal things you needed to do to make that work. But, if the, but this is right here, this very first verse in Deuteronomy 24 was the heart of the debate. If a man marries a woman, it assumes that there are situations in which this is permissible. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from her house, then here's all the things you should do. But again, the heart of that verse is the assumption, the implication, that this was permissible, this act was permissible. The question is not if, but when. The question wasn't if this was allowed. The question was, when is it allowed? And that was the heart of the debate. That was the starting point for marriage and their view of marriage and how they saw marriage is Deuteronomy 24. When can I divorce my wife? And it all the debate all kind of circulated around this one word, indecent. What does indecent mean? The man marries a woman who becomes displeasing. You become displeasing to me because he finds something indecent. What in God's law does indecent mean? How you define that word is going to give you all the things you need in order to know when I can divorce my wife is this idea of indecent. Now, the word in Hebrew literally means naked. So if you read it literally, which is what the conservatives did, they would say, and it would be understood to mean the act of adultery. If a man finds his wife naked, and they would say, okay, well, there you go. That's, that's what it means. We, we've got to read the text. It literally means naked. Therefore, really only sexual immorality. That's, that's the only one that can do it. That's how they define the text. They read it figuratively, or excuse me, they let it, read it literally that divorce was only permitted in the case of physical infidelity. However, figuratively, sort of that second meaning of this word simply means something distasteful, something displeasing. And so Hillel came to read this text to mean any and every reason. This is why the Pharisees put that in there specifically, for any, every reason reason. In fact, we have Jewish commentaries that we can read from those days that permitted a man from the school of Hillel to permit a man to divorce his wife if she burnt his toast. 
married men in the room. If your wife ever burnt a meal, if you find anything displeasing about her, Hillel said, well, that's indecent. She's not living up to her end of the bargain. And that's the key there. She's not living... Because in those days, and even, even in some ways today, although it's, it's a little different, but for the long time, marriage was seen in that world as transactional. It was transactional. You, wife, you provide children and homemaking, and I, in the social setting of that day, where it was a male patriarchal system, I will provide you because you need a social protection, I will marry you to keep you protected. So I will protect it and provide for you. And you will provide me the next generation. You will provide me children in the next generation. And you will perform the, the housekeeping things for me. You will keep our home well. And that's how we move together forward in our society. Marriage was transactional in its nature. And therefore, according to Hillel, if, if she does anything that you don't really like... Well, hand her her certificate of divorce and send her on her way. So what does indecent mean? The debate raged on. So Jesus, where do you fall in Deuteronomy 24? The Pharisees come, what does the scripture say? The Pharisees come to test him. What side are you on, Jesus? And it's a trap. Because whatever which one he picks, he'll be in trouble. And we'll get to that in a second. What side do you fall on Deuteronomy 24? Both sides focus not on how to enter in, but how to get out. Both sides focus is on keeping the transactional nature of marriage, and then when it doesn't do it for you anymore, you can just simply move on depending on what Deuteronomy 24 you believe about that passage, what you believe about indecency. But in the end, here's what it is. Marriage was seen as a means to an end. Marriage was seen as a means to an end. And what Jesus is about to do is to challenge that whole idea that marriages are not a means to an end. For the Pharisees, it was transactional. For most people, not just Pharisees, just in that culture, Marriages were seen as a means to an end. And Jesus is about to challenge that entire paradigm. He goes on. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Ooh, that's good. That's good. First off, Jesus says, haven't you read, which I can't tell you how much of an insult that would have been to the Pharisees. Haven't you read? And I'm not, I'm not being hyperbolic to say most of those guys probably had all of Genesis memorized. That is not being hyperbolic there. Memorized. And Jesus has the call to say, well, haven't, haven't you read? Oh, 
What an insult. To answer your question, basically this is what Jesus is saying. They expect him to commentate on Deuteronomy 24, and instead, Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24 instead. They want Deuteronomy 24. What's your commentary on it? Instead, Jesus moves to Genesis 2.24. It's like he's saying, to answer your question, you're not even in the right part of the Bible. The focus isn't on what it's not, but what it is. You're starting from the wrong place. Your question is foolishness because you don't understand what marriage is. You don't understand it. So you're coming at it from the totally opposite direction. Is it lawful divorce one's wife for any cause? If you're asking that question, you've already missed it. If you're asking that question, when is it lawful for me to divorce my wife, you've already missed the point. I remember when I asked uh, Molly, my wife Molly, I remember when I asked, and I've I've told this story before, asked uh, her her dad, her father, um, if I could have his daughter's hand in marriage. I went to his work. I was planning to visit. We were up in Vermont. I planned to visit. I asked if I could take him out to lunch. He said, well, I've got a lunch meeting. How about ice cream at two? So, okay. So we get our little ice cream cones, and he knew what was going on. Like, he, you know, he knew. So we had this, like, big dopey grin on his face, right, the whole time. He was just, like, living it up. He was just, and he's, uh, Molly's his only daughter, so he only gets to do this once. So he's just, he's just enjoying every moment of this as I'm, you know, nervously insisting that I pay for the ice cream, right? Like, <laughs> So I ask the question, I rush it, he slows me down, he's soaking it all in, and I say, uh, Mr. Carr, um, I'd like to marry your daughter. Do I, do I have your blessing to, to marry your daughter? And I'll never forget what he said to me. He says, absolutely, but under one condition. He said, divorce is not an option. It's not an option. He didn't say, how are you going to provide for her? He didn't say, hey, uh, are you going to take care of her well? Are you, going to, are you going to give her the things she wants? Are you, how, what, what kind of house, what kind of salary, how, what kind of lifestyle? He didn't care about any of that. He said, Brian, divorce is not an option. If you entertain it, you've already lost. Now think about this. What would have been like if I'd have bought him the ice cream, we sat at the picnic table in Vermont, we're eating it up, he's grinning. What if I had asked him this way? What if I'd have said, hey, Mr. Carr, I, 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 love, your, I love your daughter. Uh, I'd, like your, I'd like your blessing to marry her. I'd also like to talk about all the ways that it would be permissible for me to divorce her. Let's just, let's just get it all out there now, right? Like, like I just want to, let's, let's, well, I want to make sure we're both on the same page here. So let's, let's just talk about what are the reasons, what would be the permissible reasons in your mind for me to, before we start, for me to divorce her so that we're all on the same page. How do you think that conversation would have went? Because if you're asking the question, you've already missed it. If you're asking the question, you're already missing the point. Marriage is not a means to an end. 
It is a committed union, a deep connection, an inseparable bond. What God has joined together, let no one separate. So what marriage does is that it's a picture, remember? It reveals an inseparable love. Marriages are not a means to an end. Marriages reveal an inseparable love. You're missing the point, Pharisees, when you're asking me about, Deuter about Deuteronomy 24 and not about Genesis 2. You're missing the point, Pharisees, when you want me to co commentate on what indecent means and not what let no man separate means. Let me take you to the, haven't you read? Let me take you to the point of the Bible, the part of the Bible that actually addresses this over here in Genesis 2. Because marriages are not a means to an end. They reveal an inseparable love. Pharisees, don't take a hint, they want to come back at him. They want round two. So they say this, all right, Jesus, well then, why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? It's in the Bible. Yeah, 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 we get it. We, 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 know, we know Genesis 2, but, but that's not what we're talking about here, Jesus. Why would it be in the law if we weren't allowed to do it? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. That's why. It's in there not because of God. It's in there because of you and us. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. It wasn't like this in the beginning, Jesus said. And that's true. Genesis 2 comes before the fall in Genesis 3. Genesis 2 is given and commanded and established before sin enters the world. It doesn't consider sin yet. So Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, this is the ideal, and then Genesis 2 is the ideal, and then Genesis 3 happens. And now we have to make some considerations because of the hardness of your heart. That's why it's there. Because of, the sin, because of sin. Once you understand what marriage is, then the answer becomes obvious. If marriage is a committed union, a deep connection, an inseparable bond, well then what God has joined together, let no one separate. Divorce is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the plan. It's not the intention. It's not the starting place. It's not a means to an end. But unfortunately, we live in a fallen world where sin forces us into impossible dilemmas. Impossible dilemmas. And this is why, and here's the heart of it, friends, this is why Jesus doesn't take a side on this debate. This is why this is a trap. This is why Jesus does not take a side, because going too far on either direction gets you in trouble. If you side with the house of Shemaiah, the more conservative camp, what you do is you deny the reality of sin. It's a reality that there will be unfaithfulness and abandonment and abuse. Vows will be broken. And if there's no concessions for this reality, it can become just as wrong. 
if there is no concessions to the idea and the fact that sin will enter in and ways to permit it when it does, it can be just as wrong as not. In 1 Corinthians, actually, it uses the word enslaved. That you are not enslaved to someone who abandons you. You're not enslaved to someone who abuses you. You are not enslaved to someone who is unfaithful to you. We have to acknowledge sin in the world, and we have to make concessions for those sins. This is why you are permitted to, but make no mistake, Jesus says, permission is not approval. Permission is not approval. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's the hardness of our hearts. So he can't side totally with Shemaiah, but he can't obviously side with Hillel either, the more liberal camp, and deny the reality of what marriage is itself. Marriage is not simply a means to an end. It is a covenant that the creator himself established, and it must be taken incredibly seriously. And here we find, admittedly, one of the more controversial verses in the Bible. If you remarry, are you committing adultery? But again, put yourself in the context of the debate. Put yourself in the context of what the Pharisees see marriage is and what they're trying to get out of Jesus. And notice that Jesus specifically specifies husbands divorcing their wives. Look at that. Notice that. That's an important detail. He doesn't say, in general, if you get a divorce. He says anyone who divorces his wife and remarries another woman. That is an important detail as we understand the context of what the debate actually was. The emphasis is on the husband. Because in Deuteronomy 24, they're the ones that get to determine whether the wife is indecent or not. In Deuteronomy 24, it's not if either one of them decide that their spouse is indecent. It's if the man. He has the power. He gets to make the call. The woman doesn't get to make the call. And this is exactly why Jesus phrases it this way. He doesn't say, in general, divorce. He doesn't say, generally, this is what it is. He says, if a man divorces his wife, and marries another woman. Because what he's getting at is this loose, flippant, burnt toast marriage. You're not taking marriage seriously. You who are asking the question. It's a means to end to you. It's transactional. So let me tell you with as harsh words as I can, Pharisees, men who get all the power and get to make all the calls of whether or not your wife is indecent or not. You better think twice. You better be ready for what the implication is. You better be darn sure you know what you're doing. Men in the context of that debate, in the context of that culture. What he's going after here is that flippant, 
irreverent idea of what marriage is. And so he goes right to the heart of the one who has the power. He says, you better be pretty darn sure what that definition of a decent is. And in fact, it terrifies the disciples when they hear it. Their hearts are ready for, to, to receive that. To the point where like, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I want to get married. <laughs> they, they feel the weight of it in that moment. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's the hardness for us. So, marriage is not a means to an end. Marriage reveals an inseparable love. And marriages struggle because of the hardness of our hearts. They struggle because of the hardness of our hearts. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Marriages are not a means to an end. Marriages reveal an inseparable love. And marriages struggle because of the hardness of our heart. And yet still marriage is a picture. It's a picture that makes a point. It's a picture that makes a bigger point. That's why it's so important. That's why God establishes it from the foundation and the creation of this world. Even before sin enters, he establishes this. Because marriage is a picture that makes a bigger point. Friends, there's a reason why this passage is placed where it is right here. When you're reading through it, it might not, it might not feel uh, very appropriate here. previous chapter focuses on being, uh, bringing wandering sheep back to the flock, restoring sinful brothers and forgiving a sister. They are instructions for the church, sheep and brothers and sisters. It's all church language. It seems rather abrupt to go from rescue and restoration and forgiveness to divorce, like a wet blanket or a sad trombone. Wah, wah. But it's placed right here for a reason. Jesus quotes Genesis 2, 24, to show us what the picture of marriage is. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. But there's one other place in the New Testament where this same passage is quoted again. And this time, it's quoted to make the point. Jesus quotes it to reveal the picture. And then Paul uses it to make the point. Ephesians 5. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but what I am talking about is Christ and the church. Jesus quotes it to give us the picture. And then Paul quotes it to give us the point. Marriages are a picture that make a point. The church, the church, the church is the point. I am talking about Christ and his church. And just like marriages, churches are not a means to an end. We live in a world where there is a church on every corner. Don't like the one this church is offering? Try another. Is there disagreement? Well, take your business elsewhere. Churches are often transactional. We provide you the programs and teaching, and you provide us the tithes and volunteerism. And if the terms of, are not meeting either of our standards, we have grounds to leave it. But friends, the church is not 
a means to an end. It's not transactional in nature. It is to reveal an inseparable love. The church is meant to reveal an inseparable love, a committed union, deep connection, inseparable bond, which displays the ear inseparable love of Christ. So as Matthew 18, the last three weeks as we looked at Matthew 18 says, when we go after those who are wandering, when we confront sin in restorative ways, when we radically forgive over and over again, we reveal to the world a God who goes after us when we wander and confronts our sin in restorative ways and radically forgives us over and over again. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What we do here reveals the God to the world. A God who has inseparable love to us. And when we struggle as churches, when churches struggle, it is because of the hardness of our hearts. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Church divorce is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the plan. It's not the intention. It's never the starting point. And yet we feel that tension between the two sides, the two camps, and we refuse to live in either. We follow Jesus in that radical middle of refusing to pick a side or two. We must recognize the reality of sin. There are situations of unfaithfulness, abandonment, and abuse in the church. Vows will be broken. And if there are no concessions to this reality, it can, it can become just as wrong. You are not enslaved. Or you move away. That's cool too. You're not enslaved. We live in a sinful world too and that unfortunately still permeates the church as we move through sanctification trying to become more like the image of God and yet we will fail. And if there are no concessions, it can become just as wrong. And yet, we also must recognize the reality of the church itself. The church that is not simply a means to an end. It is a covenant that the creator himself established and it must be taken incredibly seriously. This is why we believe in membership so much. It's a wedding vow. It's a covenantal relationship that you enter into it with us, with each other. And we commit adultery when we leave over flippant and selfish reasons. We don't live on either side. We embrace the tension in the middle. You aren't doing it for me anymore. Things are getting tough. I, I like something else better. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's the hardness of our hearts. Because marriage is a picture that makes a point. Marriage is a picture that makes a point. Let's call the band up as we wrap this thing up here. Friends, we are other side people. We are other side people. We are different. And we are strange in more ways than one. 
We are another side people. It won't make sense and it'll look funny to the world. If there is something, so there is something different about the way God's people have to live into marriage and commitment. Because marriage is a picture for the world. Now I need to make two points here, two notes as we conclude. Number one, we have wonderful, faithful, single adults in the room. You have a special calling that Jesus speaks to here at the end. He actually addresses this very thing at the end. He says, if you can accept this calling, great, do it. Because it's a special revelation that only few can do. In fact, in other places in the scriptures, it says that it's actually a more noble task. It reveals something even more powerful. We just had a testimony in our 9 o'clock class about this. Susan Howard, who is able to reveal something even more powerful. Because Jesus has asked her to do that. So you have a special place here in together revealing the bride and the bridegroom of Christ. You have a special calling here. And secondly, I'm also very aware that this is a very difficult personal topic for others in the room who have had to walk this journey. And you might feel alone or isolated or marked or identified by it. And I was praying over this. The Lord brought Matthew 5 back to my mind. Because what did Jesus, we did this sermon series. What did Jesus say to us a few chapters earlier? You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Friends, we are all adulterers. Every one of us. And you are not alone. And you are not marked. You don't have a letter. We all have the letter. This isn't a you problem. It's an us problem. We all fail in our marriages. We all mess up the picture. We are all adulterers in this room. Marriage is a picture. Though that makes a point. The church. The church is the point. And I'm talking about is Christ in the church. And just like the picture, we also have missed the point I have missed the point. I haven't gone after some who have wandered. I haven't confronted sin in a restorative way. I haven't forgiven in my heart. I am an adulterer to you. And we are all adulterers, aren't we? We fail at both. We fail to display the picture and we fail to live up to the point because of the hardness of our heart that we do it. In my adultery to my wife and in my adultery to my church, I need a Savior. I need Jesus who 
took my sin upon his cross so that he can go after me when I wander and who can confront my sin in restored ways and who can radically forgive me over and over again. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone, let the one who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote in the ground, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one's. She said, Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. Friends, I don't have a stone in my hand. Just a cup. Just a cup. I stand before you a fellow adulterer. To my wife and to you. remember Jesus' sacrifice to us now. If you would pull that first film back, grab on the back if you need. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. over, he took the cup, he gave thanks for it, he gave it to the disciples and said, drink all of you. This is the cup of a new covenant of my shed blood for the forgiveness of your sins, for the forgiveness of every adulterous act we've done, for every way we have not lived up to the picture or the point. Father God, no one has condemned us because of your sacrifice on the cross. We are forgiven people, but ready, as you said, ready to go and live a life no more, to do better, to continue to allow the Holy Spirit to work on us. So where we need to forgive, may we forgive where we need to chase after one of our own may we do it may we be faithful 